0: Hi. When I'm recording this, it is August 21st, Friday, a few days before you're listening to this. As of right now, there have been a number of colleges that have shut down due to COVID-19. Notre Dame is one of them. They've had close to 300 cases at the moment. I'm not sure what the numbers are now. Oklahoma State University has had something like 20 cases. They've had to quarantine an entire sorority house. I don't know what Langston University is going to look like in three days, but I know that things are not super safe out there for most people. Regardless of how you feel about the coronavirus, we don't want an outbreak on campus. I want to explain why. If we have an outbreak on campus and they decide to close campus, very likely the dorms will empty. Very likely you will all be sent home to the many different wonderful places that you come from I know a lot of you are out of state. Going back to California or Florida or even a place as near as Missouri right now could be really, really challenging. I don't want that to happen to you all. As a teacher at a publicly funded university, I consider myself a public worker, a public servant. I have a a conflict right now with that service. I've been told by the school that in-person classes should be able to resume somewhat this week. This week you should be able to come to class, albeit in groups no larger than nine. And in accordance with that I have made groups for you that you can come and and I've told, I've written down what dates that you are allowed to come. But as someone who cares about your health, your well-being, and your ability to stay on campus until Thanksgiving. This campus where you can be around a certain number of people, and you have access to certain amenities, it's a place to be. As that person, I hope you don't come to class. As we've seen this week, everything that we need for this class is available online. I have made this podcast available to you for you to listen at any point during the week. The chapters are online, the discussion boards are online, You can even submit your speeches online. Everything that you need is there. I've even brought in Zoom meetings just for Q&A. A A couple of you have been using those and getting your questions answered in a one-on-one environment. I think that's pretty great. There's nothing that we can do in person that we can't do online. My ardent request is that you do not come to class. I cannot keep you from coming to class, nor will I be mean to you if you decide to come to class. But just so you know, in class we will do nothing more complicated than the Q&A sessions that we're doing on D2L. I on I will have Zoom meetings going while I'm teaching in class so that people can ask questions on Zoom. I may do some discussions, but they won't be discussions radically different from the ones we're having in the discussion board. The discussion post this week is particularly useful. I think you'll like it a lot, and I hope you engage with it. So. Before we start the episode, I just wanted to ask you all to think really hard about what you're wanting to do this semester, to request that you stay in your dorm, or wherever it is that you are at the moment, that you stay safe, that we keep Langston open. I appreciate it. I love music. Not all of it, but a decent portion of it. I like listening to it while I work, keeping it on as a background. I also play the piano, not terribly well, but well enough that I can sit down and pretty much figure out how to play a Taylor Swift song by ear. What's strange then is that when I listen to music, I don't hear the lyrics. Like I hear them, I know that someone is singing something, but I don't understand what they're saying. And not until the ninth or 10th time listening to that song, and only if I listen really intently. I don't know why. My best guess is that my mom used to play a lot of Irish music, so the lyrics were always in a different language. I just stopped trying to listen to them and learned to like them as sounds. I hear the music, but I don't really listen to it. This is Intro to Speech, and today, listening is the key. know about you guys, but I get into a lot of arguments online. Some in person, some of them online. I can be vicious sometimes. I can be cruel, I can be ironic, and right, I can be so right. I get a lot of satisfaction out of debating. I don't like admitting this, but I like the wrestling of ideas and the letting the best ideas win. But lately, I've been seeing that backfire. The people I argue with don't typically change their minds once we're done. Even if I present a stronger case than they do, they don't switch their positions. They just keep thinking the same way they've always thought. I've realized that when I'm arguing, I'm hearing what they're saying, but I'm not listening. I'm picking up enough to know what to throw back at them, but not enough to know why they think the way that they do, to figure out what they care about, or to figure out how my words can change them rather than beat them. There's this quote out of a book called Ender's Game that talks about facing your enemies, and it says, "...in the moment when I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that very moment I also love him. I think it's impossible to really understand someone, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way they love themselves." In order for our speeches to have an effect on the people we're talking to, we have to know them so well that we essentially love them. It's only through loving our audiences that we can hope to touch them. And that love has to start with listening, not just hearing. The process of putting audiences first before we design any other part of our speech is called being audience-centric. It's putting audiences at the center of our thinking, at the center of our preparations. And it's the process of figuring out what the beliefs, values, and attitudes of our audiences are so that we can use them to make our speeches appealing. In the first part of this episode, I'm going to talk about the process of listening well. And in the second, I'm going to talk more specifically about how to adapt to audiences. I'll be drawing from this week's chapters. And those are chapters 4 and chapter 6. Have you or a loved one ever felt ignored or unloved? Have you ever felt like your partner thought you were incompetent or that you couldn't handle your own problems? Have you ever been faced with a blank, unblinking stare, devoid of comprehension, only to be followed by an idiotic chatter attempting to solve your problems for you? If so, you may be entitled to compensation. Just call our toll-free number to speak to a representative who truly cares about you and who won't try to run your life for you. Our communication staff are trained listeners who know better than to think you're stupid enough to really need their help and know you just want to talk. It's time to be listened to. It's time to be loved. It's time to kick your partner out of that musty chair they've been farting into and get yourself a real set of ears. Call now. There are four types of listening. When you play a song and enjoy the sound of it, That's called appreciative listening. Listening to appreciate. You're not making your brain work very hard, you're just enjoying it. The next step up in difficulty is empathetic listening. This is what you do when you're in a relationship. So like, have you ever had a significant other who wanted to unload about their day? They just want to talk to you about something that's bothering them? They don't want you to solve their problem. They don't want help, they just want you to listen and show that you care about them. That's empathetic listening listening to feel something for the other person. Comprehensive listening is what we do in a lecture. We're listening for the purpose of understanding what's going on. That's harder than empathetic listening, but not as hard as the final form of listening. That's critical listening. So if you've ever had someone tell you something and you're not sure whether you trust that person or not, maybe they're just messing with you and you're trying really hard to figure out whether they're saying something that's true or not. Yeah, that's critical listening. Listening to decide if you accept the message or reject it. But these four types of speaking don't explain why we listen. They explain how hard we might have to work to listen in different situations, but they don't explain the things that make us listen. It's simple, really. We pay attention to things we think are important, and we pay attention to things that agree with what we believe about the world. So if I tell you how to get to campus dining services, that affects you. So you'll pay attention because you want to eat. If I tell you how to get to campus dining services at some other college, though, you'll tune me out because it's not relevant. Same thing. If you like hamburgers and I start telling you about all the way the hamburgers enhance your learning, you're going to listen to me because you like hamburgers. The things I'm saying are boosting your own point of view. If I tell you that hamburgers are bad, though, you'll start to tune me out. You'll stop listening. This explains so much of the way that people act. They stop listening when something stops affecting them personally. So they don't learn about what's going on with other people. They don't learn about other points of view. They stop listening when something contradicts them. So if they're wrong, they never find out because they don't listen. We don't listen. This tells us two things. The first is that if we are really going to get something about the world that no one else does, we'll need to pay attention to the people who disagree with us and to the people who are saying stuff that doesn't seem to have anything to do with us right now. That's super hard. It's hard to pay attention sometimes with everything going on, but if we do, we'll understand stuff that no one else around us understands. The second thing is this. It tells us that if we are going to get good at speaking, we'll need to make sure that what we're saying matters to the people listening. We'll need to show them that what we are saying agrees with something that they already believe, even if it seems like a stretch at first. That's audience adaptation. People think that audience adaptation is changing what we believe to match what other people do and think. It's not like that, though. It's about making sure that what we're saying sounds like something, that other people already agree with. If we can find ways to make what we want to say matter to other people, we can get them to agree with us and change their minds without even realizing it. So let me give you an example of what this would look like. Let's say that you don't want to give a speech in this class. I have to find a way to convince you to want to give a speech. So I have to think about the things that you want in order to persuade you to want to give a speech. Now, here's some things that I know about students. I know that they put in a lot of work, that they're here because they put in work, and at the end of the day, they want their education to be worth something. So if I wanted to put together a speech trying to persuade a student to want to give a speech, I would focus on how that's going to give them value after they leave college. I'd focus on its ability to get them a job. I'd focus on just the overall educational value of their money, basically, because you're paying to be here. You're paying for learning, not just for a certification. You want to actually be able to do things after you get out or so. That's how I see a lot of student opinions come down anyway. So by doing that, I can align with what you care about, getting something for your money, and then I can attach the idea of giving a speech to that idea. I tap into something that you care about and show you how the thing that I'm trying to persuade you to want to do plays in. That's the game we're playing. And you need to know that because everyone giving a speech is playing that game. Maybe they're good at it, maybe they're not so much, but that's why, that's why they're doing it. So you gotta know how to listen and listen actively. There are so many distractions to active listening. Sometimes it's just sounds. Sometimes it's trying to multitask. If I try to be on my phone and have a conversation with my wife at the same time, it's not going to work. I'm going to fail at listening. Sometimes it's that we think we know better than the speaker, so we automatically just start to tune them out. Or maybe we're listening just for the purpose of contradicting. So having an argument with the person in our heads, that's a problem. The way we overcome this type of thing is to for the most part get rid of distractions as much as we can but also to what engage in what is called active listening and what active listening does is you start listening for specific parts of the person's presentation you ask yourself questions while you're listening like what are their main points what are they getting at then you start looking at their evidence be like okay what statistic do they bring What facts are they stating? How are they backing those facts up? Who's saying these things that they're repeating to me? I just listened to Joe Biden's speech. He uses a lot of quotes from people in his public speeches. Quotes from people in the past who've been activists, quotes from authors. Why is he doing that? What do those quotes do for them? Do I agree with those quotes? Or does it just make his speech sound more official? Is it a trick? Or is it the real deal? And when he gives a statistic, is that statistic backed up? I can go look it up later. Or if he's trying to tell me a fact, is he giving a statistic at all? Is he providing any way for me to know whether or not what he's saying is true? You see, by asking these questions of ourselves, we can stay engaged. We can see what people are doing. We can be a part of the game instead of being customers in a service that is public speaking. If we can involve ourselves in the game by being active listeners, we can keep ourselves from being duped by speakers who don't have our best interests in mind, and we can come out of a speech with confidence when they've actually done their homework and have actually presented a good straightforward presentation. That's what we wanna do as listeners, but that's not what we assume that our audiences are doing when we're giving a speech to them. I want to make a quick note here. While we do want to listen critically in order to evaluate messages that are being given to us, we don't want to be too critical to our classmates. You will have the opportunity this semester to listen to some of your classmates' speeches and to give them feedback. Err on the side of compassion. Even when you're listening to speeches in a public setting, public speaking is hard, and it's important to remember that. Criticizing someone just because their style isn't very good and rejecting their message just because it didn't have the flair that you wanted it to isn't a great way to listen. It's also really challenging when we come into a place where we're listening to someone who's from a different culture than we are. If you're listening to a speaker for whom English is their second language, don't judge them for that. Their speech may not be up to snuff by your standards, but by golly, they know a second language. That's incredible, and they're giving a public address? That takes courage. So be sure to be supportive of people from other cultures, and don't judge them because of their culture. Don't judge them because their way of speaking might be a little bit hard for you to understand and hard for you to listen to and and hear what they're saying even. I had professors from lots of different places as an undergrad, and sometimes it was hard to be in their classes because they had thick accents. That didn't make them bad speakers, though. It just means that I had to be a better, kinder, more empathetic and harder working listener. So when you evaluate your classmates, when you listen to people who are different from you, give them the benefit of the doubt. Be kind. Listening is not just great because it allows us to learn things we wouldn't have learned before. Listening is great because it helps us to plan what we will say. If you don't know where to start with somebody, it's entirely possible that your message will offend and get you alienated before you even have the chance to give your message. Remember, audiences only pay attention to things that they care about and that they agree with. So knowing what your audience cares about and what they agree with ahead of time will let you strategize on how to get your message through. The process of figuring out what an audience knows, what, what they care about, what they believe in, that's called audience analysis. And it is the most important part of preparing for giving a public address. The key is all there, and people do this all the time. President George Bush, who was president probably when a lot of you all were born, you would notice when he would give speeches in different parts of America, his accent would change. Like, he was from Texas, but if he's speaking on the East Coast, he's got a, an accent-less delivery, but if he goes back to Texas or Oklahoma to give an address, that Texas accent comes through a little bit more, and you hear it. That's because he's trying to be more like the people that he's talking to. He's trying to adapt to who they are in order for them to like him more. It's a little creepy, almost, but that's how the game's played. Now, you don't want to do a couple things here. You don't want to pander to your audience, obviously, and you don't want to actually become someone you're not. Never lie while giving a public speech. Never pretend to believe in something that you don't believe in. That's one, unethical, and two, it won't get you where you want to go in life. What we want to do, though, is investigate the audience's psychology. What is their attitude? What is their belief? What is their values? So for instance, let's say that you're giving a speech to a senior living center. What are people who are drastically older than you going to think about certain things? You know, like if if you're talking to them about the subject of marijuana, for instance, if you are trying to argue that people with marijuana convictions should be let out of jail, how is an older audience going to take that versus a younger audience? How is an audience of different race going to take that message? How is an audience of drastically different genders going to take that audience? Different religions? All of these demographic factors play in. If you're giving a speech on sexual assault, and you're giving it like at 1 o'clock to a fraternity and at 2 o'clock to a sorority, you can't give the same message you can't say it the exact same way because that subject relates to people of different genders in completely different ways not saying here that men can't be sexually assaulted it does happen but the way you address that subject you have to be very careful to adapt it to who you're going to be talking to to make sure that it's a good message for those people so In addition to understanding what the audience's demographics are, you want to understand how they feel towards the subject and how they feel towards you. It's fairly easy to figure out what people think about some of these things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how you can research that later, but if you can figure out what people think about a subject ahead of time, you know what their arguments against you are going to be. Let's go back to the marijuana one because this is a subject that a lot of my students have given speeches on in the past. A lot of students don't think about what their audience's response is going to be. They just assume that their audience is going to be with them 100% of the way. Well, what you can do is you can go in and you can read newspaper articles or magazine articles that represent the other side of your issue. When you do that, you can see their arguments and you can plan to address those arguments in your speech. So if you know someone's going to make a counterpoint in their head, you can make a counterpoint to that point in your speech. That's anticipating the audience, figuring out what they might say against you so that you can address it then and there. That type of stuff is way advanced, but it's good to think about early on. So we talked a little bit about the demographics, the socioeconomic statuses, the cultural backgrounds, all of that is really important. But you have to write a line. Because things like gender can quickly turn from insight into stereotype. You can't assume that everyone of the same gender or the same religion or the same ethnic background is going to have the same reaction to something because we're all individuals. So audience analysis, while powerful, can only go so far. You don't want to base your audience analysis off of stereotypes. It was a very common stereotype in the 1940s to consider that Jewish people loved money. So if you knew back in the 1940s that you were gonna speak in front of a primarily Jewish audience, and you decided that, oh, okay, I'm going to focus entirely on the financial gain in the speech, you could alienate some of your audience members who are familiar with those stereotypes and are offended by them. So, just a heads up, be careful with that. The best way to analyze an audience ahead of time is to find someone from that type of group that you're gonna be talking to. Let's say, again, a senior living center. Have a conversation with someone in a senior living center. Ask them some questions about what they feel about the subject. Ask their perspective ahead of time. Oftentimes, before I put together an assignment for a class, I roll into my wife's room and I ask her, If you were a student, if if you saw this assignment back when you were a student, what would you think about it? How would you respond to this? And if she tells me, yeah, I would hate that, or no, I definitely wouldn't do that, or yeah, that sounds like something I would have been really interested in, I can know what students who are like my wife might respond to the assignment with. That's a really powerful tool for me, because if I just ask other teachers they unless they remember how their students reacted to a similar assignment they're going to have the same exact perspective as i do you can't plan on talking to a senior living center by talking to your 18 year old best friend they're not going to have the same perspective so you have to figure out you have to go talk to someone who's of the perspective that you're doing now y'all's audiences this semester are primarily college students so that's great talk to your roommate talk to the people on your floor Have communication with other college students online. Ask questions about what they believe and look for people who have opinions that are different from yours. If only so that you can understand those opinions and reflect those and have arguments that renounce those opinions. Knowing what they care about is powerful and valuable to you. Sometimes people out in Western Oklahoma can really make me mad. Sometimes the opinions that they have frustrate me to no end. Sometimes I'll be so fired up that I can't sleep. It it can be very frustrating for me. But I still talk to them because I want to understand their point of view, if only so that I can understand my own point of view better. Being able to have those conversations means that I have a chance to change some of their minds about certain things. Because if I don't listen and I don't know, there's no way I have a shot at it analyzing your audience is one of the single most important things you can do in preparing for a speech. Read things that they read. Talk to them about the issues ahead of time. You will even have the opportunity in this class, if you want to, to post some questions on the discussion board that you maybe want people to answer. So if you're going to give a speech on marijuana incarcerations and you don't know where the audience is going to fall on certain parts of that speech, go ahead and ask them. It's worth it. It's worth it to figure that out. So, here's what we got for this week. Now that you've listened to this episode, go participate in the discussion board. You may want to read the chapters. I at least recommend reading chapter six there will be an exam question about chapter six, and the more you know about audience analysis, the better off you'll be. The better off you'll be when giving public speeches as well. A lot of my feedback tends to come back around to, okay, did you think about your audience? Did you think about what they know and what they don't know? Because audience analysis goes deeper than just the feelings about things too. If you want to explain to an audience how a computer works, you need to know how much they know ahead of time. If you jump in and get too technical, That can ruin an audience's perception. They won't be able to follow along. That said, if you're giving a speech about how to stop fires to a bunch of firefighters, you don't want it to be too basic. So you want to know how much your audience knows about a subject before you launch in. All of this and more information are in Chapter 6, so please give that a read. Audience Analysis, the chapter on that, is very, very helpful. Yes, so please contribute also to the discussion board. We are talking about Barack Obama's 2004 DNC speech. This is the speech that put him on the map before he ran for president. So back then he was just a senator. So very much so, this was his self-intro speech to most of the country. It's worth noting for that reason, because you all are about to give self-intro speeches for this class. The first five minutes of that speech that he gives, up until around the time he starts talking about the candidate that he's endorsing, those first five minutes or so are the exact model for what a self-intro speech might look like. He hits a lot of the main points of it. So please watch that speech, just the five minutes of it, and then answer the prompts that I put in there. These will ask you to give your opinion, and I hope that you think deeply about the questions because they're good, solid, meaty questions for us to ask and to think about. I think I will probably engage with some of you as well. I'll jump into the discussion and we'll talk. Don't worry about getting the right answer, but tell me authentically what you think. That's what I'll be looking for in this discussion post. That's all we have going on for week two. Week three, we will have the self-intro speeches. I'll have more information on that at the beginning of week three and I may also post the assignment so that you have some idea of what you're looking at. I will have zoom meetings um, on all of the class days and the class times that we have assigned. Um, but those zoom meetings are optional. I don't take attendance using them. They are just if you have questions for me. So if you run into any questions about the material or about this class. What you can do is you can join me during those Zoom days, you can send me an email, or you can text me through Remind. Those of you who have texted me through Remind know that I get back to you real, real quick. I keep my phone on me, and I answer text messages pretty well, even after hours. So please, get in touch with me if you have any questions or concerns. I'm proud of you all for completing your first week. This is going to be an interesting semester, challenging, but you all are up to it. I believe in you. I believed in you last week, and I believe in you still. Tackle this week. Wrestle it to the ground. I'll talk to you again real soon.